So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Um, my grandmother was always quoting Proverbs. A stitch in time saves nine. Look before you leap. The longest journey begins with the first step. Tomorrow never comes. Love is blind. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. You know the funny Chinese proverb? Man who runs behind car get exhausted. <laughs> Man who run in front car get tired. <laughs> or this one. Build a man a fire, he'll be warm for a day. Set a man on fire, he'll be warm for the rest of his life. But sensible proverbs. We were thinking this morning, weren't we, the starting the story of Jim Elliot. You remember that famous quote from him. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In days gone by, proverbs were a big part of everybody's life. Today, we don't use proverbs. We use slogans or logos or sound bites. We want to look good, sound good, not be good. So we don't think in proverbs, and that makes it doubly difficult for us to understand the proverbs in the Bible because, number one, we don't think this way, and number two, we don't really understand the world in which this proverb was a relevant proverb. Uh, so it, it needs a lot sometimes to get back into these scriptures and understand what these proverbs are saying and what they mean for us today. So I'm going to do my best to explain Proverbs 11, 1 to 6 as helpfully as I possibly can. And I just want you to understand that this is the end of the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes. We move on to the conclusion next week. The first half of Ecclesiastes, that was chapters 1 to 6, said life is confusing. It can't be grasped with the hands. It's like chasing for the wind. And that phrase, it's a chasing after the wind, meaningless, meaningless, chasing after the wind, uh, keeps appearing uh, in those chapters. It's like trying to um, build a sandcastle on the beach. It's not permanent. You can't grasp it with your hands. The second half of Ecclesiastes, chapters 7 to 11, says that life is uh, complicated, it's confusing, it can't be grasped with the head. And this is in two halves, chapters 7 and 8. Four sections in those two chapters. Each end, man can't discover. Those words, can't discover, end each section. There's something about this world that we can't discover it all. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11, verses 1 to 6, keep ending with the phrase, four times, don't know. So you can see chapter 11, verse 2. Give portions to seven, yes, eight, for you do not know what disaster. And then it ends, verse six, halfway through chapter 11, verse six. For you do not know which will succeed. And this is the emphasis that Solomon is giving us. There's something about life that is beyond our grasp and beyond our comprehension. We're in a fallen world. And um, a bit like Buzz 
light here. We've got to learn to live in this fallen world so that we can fall with style <laughs> or live wisely in a foolish world because ignorance can ruin your life. Uh, one proverb says, if you think education is expensive, you should try ignorance because that is disastrous. But not only are some things impossible for us to understand, but some things are impossible for us to change. And so we have to know how to live wisely in this fallen world. And the first thing we learn in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, is don't be paralyzed by greed. Cast your bread upon the waters, and after many days you will find it again. That's the correct translation. Modern versions think this is so confusing, they, they have paraphrased it or interpreted it about putting your grain in boats and sending them off. But they cast your bread upon the waters, and after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. We all know about rabbits being paralyzed by fear and ourselves being paralyzed by stress and fearful situations. But you can also be paralyzed by greed. They say if you get a goat and you put it exactly between two piles of food either side of the field, the goat will die of starvation because it can't decide which way to go. It wants them both and can't decide between them. Well, Solomon says here in verse 1, don't be greedy, don't hoard what you've got. Cast your bread upon the waters. And I suppose when you read this, you think of a sailor throwing his sandwiches to feed the fish, just going into the sea and getting soggy and disintegrated. And you think, what a waste of your lunch. But that's not what Solomon is saying. He's not saying don't eat your lunch. He told us in chapter 9, verse 7, to eat your food with gladness. But here he's saying, don't eat it all yourself. Make sure some is saved for others. And don't store it up in the cupboard where it will go moldy. Cast it on the waters. A few weeks ago, we took our little grandson, Monty, about what, 17, 18 months old. And we took him down a couple hundred yards from where we live to the Eiford Bridge to feed the ducks. And we gave him some bread. Um, 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 um. He didn't want to throw it on the water. He just wanted to eat it all himself. Well, finally, we got him to throw it on the water, and the ducks came to eat it, and the, the uh, seagulls came and pinched most of it. But in Solomon's day, this wouldn't be wasted because when you threw your bread on the waters and fed the ducks, the ducks got plump. And soon you could have duck in plum sauce or Peking duck or Jerusalem duck or duck a l'orange or however they had duck in 9th century BC Israel. You weren't throwing it away. You were feeding others and you were investing, investing it. And then he says, not merely don't hoard, but he goes on and he says, be Generous while you can, verse 2. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. 
There is a statement by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount where he tells us to give to the person who asks you for something. And I struggled with this for years. Give to him who asks you. If someone asks me for my job, should I give it to them? If someone asks me for my house, should I give it to them? Well, I went to India. And every time I went into the town, people just <sighs> appeared from nowhere begging for money. And um, I was an Englishman. I remember getting on the train and someone uh, who was not traveling on the train got on from the platform, came up to me, giving me a piece of paper in English saying they wanted some money and I only had two 50-pound notes which were utterly useless to her and pretty valuable to me. And so I wouldn't give her anything. So she started hitting me on the head. Because I was a wealthy Englishman, why wasn't I giving them some money? So I went to the bank and I got lots and lots of small change, like 5p coins. So whenever these kids came around, I would give them all the equivalent to 5p so they could buy some sweets or something. Do you think they were satisfied? No, they weren't. And I suddenly realized that if I kept doing this after a few days, I would be on the streets begging because I'd get rid of all my money. And so I looked closely at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And he didn't say give them exactly what they asked for. Not even God does that. Not even God gives us exactly what we ask for. But we are to give them some help. If someone comes to you needing some help, then give to the person who asks you. Maybe you just give them advice. Maybe you give them a rebuke. Maybe you uh, tell them to come back and see you tomorrow or whatever. But you don't give a drug addict money. You give her food and drink and a blanket. Don't give exactly what they demand. Indeed, Solomon says here, you can't help everybody. So he says, give portions to seven, yes to eight. If you're going to help people in a meaningful way, then you must choose who you are going to help. So choose seven or eight and choose sensibly who you're going to help properly and then give them some real help. So you might decide to sponsor a child in the third world for the whole of the child's education for 15 years support her through school or you might decide to support a missionary or you might decide to invest for your uh, grandchild's education or you might um, decide to financially help someone you know in the church who's in need or uh, someone who's going to do short term mission work or, or something and you help them in a meaningful way don't give them crumbs, give them portions. Sort out your money. Make sure you've budgeted and you know what you've got and then use it in a biblical way. First of all, you have got to pay for your own um, costs. You mustn't go into debt. You shouldn't owe anybody anything. So don't go into debt. Choose an acceptable standard of living. And then on top of that, you have disposable income. And you could, should support, first of all, those in your immediate circle that God brings across your path. Maybe uh, a friend or whatever. That's your specific responsibility. Then your local church needs. We've got to make sure the needs of the local church are being met. And then there are global church needs. There's the persecuted church, etc. And, and the Christians in the developing world. And then there's the wider world, isn't there? Just the social needs that swamp our world, whether it's cancer research or whatever. But Solomon says you can't give to everybody, so help 
Seven or eight, not just one or two, seven or eight. Be generous while you can, for you don't know when disaster will come. Back in the 1930s, two students were studying at Stanford University, and they thought of a clever way to raise some financial support. They thought if they could get the famous pianist Paderewski to put on a piano recital, then they could sell tickets. And they would sell so many tickets, they would make so much profit, it would pay for them to get through university. And they thought this was a good idea, so they wrote to Paderewski, and his manager said, okay. But they were told that they would have to pay Paderewski $2,000 for that concert. Well, it was all organized. But on the day of the concert, these students had only raised $1,600. (laughs) And they were meant to be making a profit. And they couldn't even afford the um, $2,000 to pay Paderewski. So they went to see Paderewski and explained the problem and said they they would give him the uh, $1,600 uh, and they would pay him the rest whenever they could. No, said Paderewski. No, he said. First, take out all the costs for the evening. And then what is left... Take out 10% each for your own work and give me whatever is left over. Well, the students were deeply grateful. Years went by and Paderewski became premier of Poland. The Second World War was starving the people of Poland and Paderewski was desperately trying to find aid to feed his people. And the United States president, Hoover, he sent thousands of tons of aid to Poland. And after the war, Paderewski traveled to Paris to personally thank Herbert Hoover. But President Hoover explained that he was glad to help, especially since he was one of those two students who Paderewski had helped years before. Don't hoard. Give portions to seven or eight. Cast your bread upon the waters because you don't know what will happen. Don't be an Ebenezer Scrooge. Be generous. Okay, secondly, verses three and four. Don't be paralyzed by inability. Before Caroline and I moved up here to uh, Chesterfield in 1990, January the 1st, 1990. Before that, we spent four years in Broadstairs. And you may remember that in October 1987, there was a hurricane. Well, I happened to have a week's study leave uh, that week, and I, we were staying up in Huntingdon. And I remember being really irritated that night because there was one of those um, wind... What are they called on top of a house? It shows a direction. Weather vane. Thank you. The trouble is when everyone says it at different times, I just hear... (laughs) Weather vane, that's right. And it was obviously damaged by the strong wind and was rattling. I got so annoyed. And then found out in the morning what it would be like in Broadstairs, where we lived in Holly Farmhouse, surrounded by huge trees. 
and they had fallen this way, that way, and the other way. And by God's grace, not one had fallen on the house. But the people from the church told us that they just sat under the kitchen table and had a prayer meeting all night long. It was terrifying. But you see, the trees fell where they fell, and they just stayed there. They didn't say, oh, we shouldn't fall on the house, we'll go this way, or we shouldn't stay across the road, let's get up and move. They just fell there, and they stayed there. Look at verse 3. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant, whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. There are lots of things like this that are completely out of our control. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen, do we? Whether we're going to be taken ill, whether we're going to be in a car crash, whether you know our family members are going to get meningitis. We just don't know. These things are out of our control. The question is: Will you be paralyzed by them, or will you work around them? Some people are controlled by their circumstances. You ask them how they are, and they say, all right, under the circumstances. They've got this victim mentality, uh, and they can give you every reason for not doing something because of the circumstances. So in the spring, when you should sow your seed, they never sow their seed because it looks as if it might be windy and it might blow the seed onto the neighbor's farm, and we wouldn't want that to happen, should we? No. And in the autumn, when you should be bringing in your harvest, they never harvest their crop. Oh, it looks as if it might be raining. Now it might be windy, and it might rain, but you still have to do what's sensible. Can you imagine people who refuse to go on a lovely holiday because it might rain? It's stupid. And yet we can be like this. We won't be adventurous. We won't accept the challenge. We, we are are just paralyzed in case there are difficulties, in case there are obstacles. If you're going to do anything worthwhile in life, there will be risks, there will be obstacles to face, there will be difficulties to overcome. Don't be put off by them. Think of them as challenges. Think of them as an, advent as a an adventure. If you wait until everybody knows it's going to be good... If you wait until you can guarantee success, if you wait until every obstacle has been removed, then it will be too late. In 1924, John Logie Baird invented the television. Now, Marconi was doing very well with the wireless. The question was, should Marconi play it safe and stay with the wireless, or should he be adventurous and uh, venture out to the television? Well, there were risks involved, but if we don't take the risks, we stay small. What should they have done? Well, verse 2 tells us, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't be put off by possible dangers either. Be courageous. And as a church, this is relevant to us, isn't it? If we're going to go forward then we have to step out in faith. If we play it safe, we will lose. There are reasons why some churches are small. 
Don't be paralyzed by things outside your control. Do what you can. And then thirdly, verse 5, recognize your ignorance, verse 5. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. There are some things out of our control and there are some things out of our understanding. Some things we will never understand and we have to learn to live with our limitations. First of all, he says you don't know where the wind will blow. The weathermen try to tell us where it will blow. I've been watching the weather forecast for Bournemouth avidly these last few days and it said it was going to rain, start raining from midnight last night and it was going to rain all through the night until about 3 o'clock this afternoon. When I got up this morning, there was a chance it might have a little bit of rain at 3 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> it all given up raining. And you don't know where the wind will blow. Just follow a twister through Kansas. You see these people, don't you, who are twister chasers. And, and you can see this incredible twister going along and suddenly it turns left or something. Do you remember that hurricane in 1987? When Michael Fish, the weatherman, said, someone has written to me asking whether there's going to be a hurricane. Definitely not, just a small breeze. <laughs> and that was just a few hours before it struck. And that's with all the information they've got. Verse 5, as you do not know the path of the wind. And you don't know how a human is formed. It says here, um, it says here, or how the body is formed. And then there's an A to take you to the footnote, which says, sorry, this is a bit dark, or know how life or the spirit enters the body being formed. It's not saying you don't know how the cell multiplies and forms a human body. It's saying you don't know how a true human life, spirit, uh, is formed. Does God give you your soul or do you inherit it from your mum and dad just as you inherit your body from your mum and dad you inherit your soul from your mum and dad do you have a soul before you take your first breath do you have soul before you have blood we you just don't know we just don't know they these things are out of our understanding and so thirdly he says you don't understand the work of god as you don't know the path of the wind or how the life and soul enters the body being formed, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. And this is what Solomon's been leading us up to. Because, you see, some people reject Christianity because they can't understand what God is doing. Why did God allow Auschwitz? Why does God allow babies to be born handicapped? Why did God let my friend die? We don't know. Or, I can't understand how dinosaurs fit in with creation. Or, if God is sovereign, why should I pray? Or, does God elect people? Or, do people have to make their own personal decisions? How can a God of love let anyone go to hell? Why did God allow the devil to exist? Why didn't God create the world differently? And we can go on and on with these have no idea the answers. Loads of difficult questions. Now, you can't understand the world around you, the wind, 
And you can't understand your own self, how you got your soul. But we live with these problems. So why do we reject God? Because we can't understand his ways. We've got to be logical. There's lots that we can't understand. And there's lots about God that we'll never be able to understand. When we lived in Carnarvon Close some 20 years ago, there was a guy who lived down the end who used to take his dog with him to get the newspaper. And then he would fold the newspaper up, stick it in the dog's mouth, and he'd walk home with the dog carrying the newspaper in his mouth. And I often used to think about that because the newspaper made sense. And the dog could carry it in his mouth. But he couldn't understand it in his head. It was beyond the dog's ability to understand. And there are lots of things in this world that are beyond our ability to understand, especially the things of God. And so we live by faith because there are some things we'll never understand. And it's a good job we don't know everything. That's not a reason to reject God. That's the reason we need God. And we need to be putting our hand in the hand of the man who stilled the waters. And we need to be walking with God through this world because there's so much we don't understand. And so finally, Solomon says in verse 6, live properly. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. So Solomon comes to the end of this second section of his book. Since we don't know everything, and since we can't do everything, what should we do? And Solomon says, do your work in the mornings and don't be idle in the evenings. And there are two lessons we learn from this verse. The first is, don't be lazy. There are some people who just give up on life, drop out. Most people, most, maybe I'm wrong, but I would think that most people tend towards being lazy. If someone will serve you, then you'll let them. If someone will tidy up after you, you leave it for them, maybe 50%. Okay, maybe mum and dad aren't lazy and the two kids are lazy. 50%, I don't know. I don't know, but laziness not only uh, harms your life, it's a sin against God. Do your work. The temptation for people in Solomon's culture was to put off their work. I'll do it later. I'll do it tomorrow. No, says Solomon, sow your seed in the morning. Get your work done. And for us today, it means not merely making sure you get to work for 9 o'clock on a Monday morning, but make sure you've had time to read your Bible and pray. Make sure in the mornings you start your day right. Don't be lazy. But the other lesson this verse teaches us is don't be a workaholic. He doesn't say, look, sow your seed in the morning and keep going all the day until you, you fall asleep. Keep sowing your seed. No, he says, he says, sow your seed in the morning and in the evening, do something else. Don't let your hands be idle for you don't know which will succeed, whether this, what you did in the morning, or this, what you do in the evening. There is pressure for us to be committed to our work every hour of the day. And um, this, I suppose, is especially true for those who are in full-time Christian work because they feel guilty if they're not working because the church has employed them or the mission has employed them to work. And so many people 
uh, also who have pressurized jobs. They, they can feel that they've got to be working every hour of the day doing their job, and there's always more to do. But Solomon says, stop. Do something different in the evening. Don't just be a couch potato and sit in front of the telly and let your mind, um, whatever your mind does when it's watching telly, but invest time in your children or run a youth club or do a correspondence course or show hospitality. Do something different in the evenings because you don't know which God will bless. But don't put all your eggs in one basket. Just don't do your, start your job in the morning and do it all the way until you drop. Do your job, but don't be a workaholic. Do something different in the evening. Some silly people in our generation think they don't need to work because Simon Cowell will spot them. And they'll be a famous millionaire by this time next week. And I thought about that. I thought, how many people win the X Factor each year? One. How many people win the lottery each year? Well, if you think of a lottery on Wednesday and Saturday, that's 100 people every year win the lottery. So you're 100 more times likely to win the lottery than Simon Cowell spot you <laughs> and you win the X Factor, right? And then I thought about it. If you buy your lottery ticket on a Thursday, you are more likely to be dead on the Saturday <laughs> than you are to win the lottery. So I'm told you should always buy your lottery ticket at the last possible moment, if you buy lottery tickets, because you're more likely to die than to win because the odds are so much against you, and yet you're a hundred times more likely to win the lottery than you are to you know, win X Factor, and yet people think that's what's going to happen to them. It's just ridiculous. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. My nephew was determined to join the Royal Marines. So he didn't bother doing his schoolwork. And his mum and dad did their best to get him to revise for his exam. So I don't need my exam. I'm going into Royal Marines. And I remember him going out for a run with me, getting ready to go for the Royal Marines. He knew what he was going to do. Well, just before his 18th birthday, we had a party for him as he was just about to join the Royal Marines. And he joined them on this day. The next day, one of the lads in training had a heart attack and died. That put the wind up my nephew. Within two weeks, several others had dropped out. It was so hard. But he continued for a whole six weeks <laughs> before he got out and dropped out, and then it was too late for him because he'd put all his eggs in that one basket, and now he found he couldn't do it. But that's not how the child of God is to live. The person who knows that God exists, who lives to please God, even things that we don't understand, we can't change, even the things we want to hoard and hold on to, we submit them all to him, and we live to please him. And the amazing thing is we find that when we live God's way, when we live to please God, it's the best way we can live at all. So Jim Elliot got it right. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so Solomon got it right. 3,000 years ago. Put God first. Trust God. Follow God's ways. Live right. And of course, Jesus Christ came, who is wisdom itself. 
And he said, follow me. And he was the victorious one. So we follow him not only through life, but through death itself to glory.